So this morning, we're going to start um, a, new, a new sermon series, um, and we're going to worship a little bit more together uh, in a little bit as we move towards communion. Um, we're starting a new sermon series about who we are, and, and we're doing this because we're making this move to a new facility. We're kind of in the summer doldrums right now, as you can tell from the heat, the number of folks uh, in our midst who are traveling uh, uh, in these summer months. So I want us to just reflect and consider who has God called us to be. Uh, this past or two weeks ago, Curtis Evans and I were at a, uh, a conference here in Chicago, and we had lunch together. and, and Curtis pointed out one of my uh, one of my more more one of my favorite verses. I think you could say from First Peter. We talked about this verse a little bit over lunch. He and I. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 10, uh, the Apostle Peter is writing to this early church, and he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. He says, Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, so Peter is saying, look, before you were not, and now you are. Before you were not a people, you were not a community, but now in Jesus, because of what you have received in Jesus, you are a people. You are a community. And so I want us over the next few weeks to consider what does it look like, what does it feel like for us to be a people? And and we shouldn't expect this to be natural. First, uh, Peter says, this is a new thing for you. Your memory is of not being a people, of not being a community. But now you are a people. And so there's a sense that being the people of God is uh, a foreign experience to us. It can can, uh, uh, feel like putting on, uh, you know, some clothes that don't quite fit right. It's just, you're not quite comfortable. It's new. It's different. It's a foreign experience. And so this morning, we're going to begin this series. Let me read to you three scripture passages uh, that will anchor us in our text and our topic this morning. You'll see these up on the screen. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the seas and all that is in them, But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. And then from the New Testament Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 27 and 28. Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is the word of God. And let's pray. 
We ask, Holy Spirit, now that you communicate your truth to us through the reading, through the teaching of your word. Allow it to be active to us today. Open us up before you again. Teach us what it is that you want to teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Jennifer, would you grab a couple folks and bring some water down, please? Um, So um, in a minute, just hold your hand up. Our ushers want to put some cold water in your hand. It's partly selfish on my part, because if you're sipping on cold water, you're not going to fall asleep in my sermon. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. David, would you just help Jennifer with that water, please? Hold up your hand. Again, we'd love to put some water in your hand, so just wave your hand. Admit it. You want some cold water. I know you do. And we're gonna, and we'll, we'll give you some cold water. Thanks. We have a new identity. We are the people of God. Once we were not the people of God, now we are the people of God. So what does it look like? What does it look like for us to be the people of God? Well, on our retreat recently, and Carla, can you put up the, the slide of, of, of our retreat? Uh, two weeks ago, about 40 of us from the church went up to Lake Geneva for our first uh, all-church retreat. And on Saturday afternoon, this group of folks um, gathered in a room, and we, we spent time on three different questions. We asked, uh, uh, what, is it, what are the obstacles to resting as a people? We were looking at Jesus' invitation to his disciples to come away with him and to rest. What are the obstacles in our culture to resting, we asked. The second question we asked is, well, what are the obstacles unique to our church that make it difficult to rest? I'm going to share some of those answers with you in a few minutes. And then the third question that we wrestled with was, what would it look like in our church, in our community, to be a people who, yes, worked, served, engaged in God's mission, but also regularly accepted the invitation that Jesus gives us to stop and to rest? And one of the things that kind of bubbled up in that conversation was, we don't really know what it looks like to rest. We don't really know what it looks like as Christians, especially in community, to rest, to stop, to cease, to Sabbath, as we hear in our text this morning. We all kind of know how to go on vacation, right? Anybody in the room struggle with knowing how to go on vacation? Bethany does. That's true. I know Bethany enough to know she's not lying. Most of us, though, given the opportunity, oh, we got a list of places we'd like to have a vacation and what it would look like. This is different than a Sabbath rest. And what became clear to us on this retreat is that we have some learning and growing to do as a church as we learn how to rest together. And so I want this morning our first marker of this new people of God to be those who understand Sabbath. What does Sabbath look like? Well, the Hebrew word that we get Sabbath from literally means restfulness. The root word is to cease or to desist. So we see this in the Old Testament passages. You stop working so that you can rest, so that you can Sabbath, so that you can experience restfulness which is a little bit helpful. We can picture the negative, what you don't do. But what do you do? There's no one passage in the, in the Old Testament that says this is exactly what it looked like to Sabbath. You're not going to find that. But if we comb through the Old and, and the New Testament, we begin to get a sense of what Sabbath looked like for the children of Israel, for the Hebrew people. And, and there were kind of two major categories that I would point you to. 
The first was Sabbath involved corporate rest. Say rest. Corporate rest. And the second was corporate worship. Say worship. Corporate rest and corporate worship. These are the two major themes that we see from Old Testament to New Testament. What did it look like for people to Sabbath? Corporate rest and corporate worship. So corporate rest, we see the Israelites and everyone within their influence stopping. So it's not just an insider thing. It's not just if, if you were a Jew, then you stopped resting. Did you, did you notice in our passage this morning that the, the text says that everything was to stop? Everybody under the the, the Hebrew children's influence was to get the same benefit of Sabbath. It didn't matter whether you were a king or a servant. You were to rest. This happened together on Sabbath, what we would call Saturday. But then there was corporate worship as well. And here are some of the things that we find happening in corporate worship for the Hebrew people on the Sabbath. We find teaching, prayer, remembrance of God's faithfulness, so looking back, but also looking forward, hopeful expectation of God's provision. There is singing that happens. Offerings were received. There were priests who served on the Sabbath day. There was repentance that happened. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but it gives you maybe a window, a sense of what Sabbath looked like. It'd be hard to put ourselves in the mind of of somebody in that time, what that Sabbath worship would look like. But hopefully you get a sense of what these people were living into together on a weekly basis. So Sabbath was a big, big deal. It made the top ten list of commandments. It was important. It mattered. So it's maybe not surprising that Jesus talks about Sabbath a lot. He talks about it mostly in conversation with the Pharisees. You see, in our passage from Mark this morning, a couple verses earlier in verse 24, the Pharisees asked Jesus, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? This is what kicks off the conversation. And Jesus and his followers, they're walking on the Sabbath and they're going through a a field. It might be a cornfield. And they're hungry. They haven't eaten. They've been traveling for a little bit. And so his disciples pick some grains and they eat it as they go. So this is like the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of fast food, okay? And the Pharisees see this and they stop them and they say, why are you working harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Now to you and I, that seems like they're being rather nitpicky, but this was very, very important to them. So when Jesus did this, or when Jesus healed people on the Sabbath, the Pharisees took notice. They thought that he was breaking the Sabbath laws. Why is this so important to them? Because for the the Pharisees, Sabbath-keeping equated righteousness. Keeping God's commandments equaled God's favor. Doing what God had commanded meant that they were then in God's favor. And the Pharisees especially, they saw it as their duty to get everybody to follow all of the commandments. This is what would gain God's favor. The the Pharisees added some commandments to their own. They interpreted the Old Testament, as you can see, very, very specifically about how these things were to be done. But the reason they cared was because keeping these laws meant Gaining God's favor. 
Jesus says to them in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. Jesus here confronts the Pharisee, their legalistic, even oppressive view of the Sabbath. They would rather the Sabbath be quote-unquote kept than somebody be healed. And I think we like this about Jesus. We like the Jesus who goes toe-to-toe with the, you know, the, 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 the Pharisees, with the powerful religious people. We like this Jesus, this rule-breaking, liberating, healing Jesus. I want to be with him. I like this guy. And it's true. Time after time, Jesus shows that our reconciliation with God comes through God's grace and mercy alone. Not through any list of rules that we keep. So I think most of us can come to this passage, can hear Jesus' words and be like, great, go Jesus! And we can move on. We hear say, Jesus saying, look, don't worry about it. Don't worry about keeping the Sabbath. Don't worry about keeping all these rules. It just, your heart is what really matters. So don't, you don't even think about the Sabbath that much. A friend of mine from college, I was visiting him and his family a few years ago, and um, they, their lives were just crazy chaotic, just stressed, just all trying to do so much. Uh, they had invited me over for dinner, and it was, you know, one of, you know, like when you're visiting some people and you just, like, you can't relax because... Everybody's just tense. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, yeah, that's my house. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's what, I, that's what it felt like, right? And so after dinner, we were kind of talking, and, and, and I sort of, you know, introduced this idea of Sabbath. And I said, do you guys ever, like, do you stop? Do you guys take a day where you get kind of rest as a family? And my friend's response was very telling. He said, he said no, not really, because Jesus freed us from having to keep the Sabbath. We don't have to live according to those Old Testament laws anymore. And there's a very real sense that he's right about that. This is, I think, how most of us live, how we think about the Sabbath. We don't have to do that anymore. We are not obliged anymore. Here's the thing. The Pharisees had issues with the Sabbath that Jesus confronted we have our own issues with the Sabbath. For the, for the Pharisees, their issues had to do with the fact that their acceptance by God was tied up in whether they could keep the rules. This is what Jesus confronts over and over again. But let me be blunt. I don't think that's our issue. I don't think most of us in the room this morning are are losing a whole lot of sleep over whether we're keeping the Old Testament law perfectly. Tell me if I'm wrong about that. I think the Pharisees' issues with the Sabbath are different than our own. You see, our culture is different than theirs was. Our issues are different than theirs were. And if we miss this, then we're going to miss what Jesus is saying to us when he says the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. All right, so if we kind of know some of the Pharisees' issues, how about ours? Well, this is one of the things we talked about as a church on our retreat. So, Carl, if we can go ahead and put, uh, put up the list here that we came up with on our retreat. We went into four different small groups, and we answered the question, what are some of the cultural obstacles to rest? 
What are the, what are the things that we confront regularly? So this is, this is the list that, we, that you came up with. We live in a culture that needs to produce. We need to be known by our accomplishment. We, we experience loneliness. Our culture experiences isolation and loneliness. We know what it is to never really be satisfied. We're constantly focusing on the future. There's a belief that time is money. We equate entertainment with rest. There can be a belief that certain forms of success indicate divine blessing, and some of us are addicted to technology. Ah, this is a pretty helpful list. A pretty accurate list, perhaps, of the, the, the culture that we live in. It's a different culture. It's a different time. We have different issues than the Pharisees had. Again, for the Pharisees, it was religious obligation. But for us, I think it's our issues when we hear the Sabbath, when we look at the Sabbath, our issues is that we see this as a stifling and an archaic commandment. Something that seems outdated at best and theocratic at worst. The practice that has no place in a society of individual responsibilities, freedoms, and choices. This, I think, is what we feel when we come to the Sabbath. So if this morning we can agree that the Pharisees had a skewed view of Sabbath, can we also agree that the priorities and the idols of our culture have infected our own view of the Sabbath? If you can agree with me on that, then we begin to see why Jesus' answer is so brilliant in its simplicity. Because in just a few words, he cuts through the hang-ups and biases of the Pharisees, but also of us. He shows us in these few words God's motivation for a Sabbath day of rest. The Sabbath, Jesus says, was not made, or people, Jesus says, was not made for the Sabbath. It's the other way around. Sabbath was made for people. It's as though Jesus looks at both the Pharisees and us with all of our issues and says, you've got it wrong. You're looking at this all wrong. The day of rest is always meant for your good. The Sabbath has always been God's beautiful gift for you. Gift. Say gift. This is the word for us this morning. The gift of Sabbath. The Pharisees saw an obligation that had to be met. We might see an obligation that is meant to be overthrown. It is instead, Jesus shows us, a gift. Okay, now here's my job. Here's my job. I need to convince you this morning that the Sabbath is a gift. Some of you are like melting away. You're so hot. You're sweating. You're tired. You're trying to stay awake. You're like, this does not feel like a gift to me. So my job is challenging today. Let me try to do this as briefly as I can. I want you to walk away. I want you to walk away this morning with a deep sense that God intended, intends a Sabbath day of rest as a gift for us. How is it a gift? Number one, Sabbath rest incites our worship and love of God simply for who God is. Sabbath rest incites our worship and our love for God. We live in a time, in a culture, in a place where it's expected and accepted that we find a God, we fashion a God, we form a God who works for us. If you even believe in God 
then what's most important is that that God, that faith, works for you. How many times have you been in a conversation with a friend who doesn't share your faith and you're explaining your faith and at the end of the conversation, the friend says, well, hey, as long as it works for you. Anybody? Anybody? The point is not whether it's true, it's just whether it works, whether it's functional for you. And I think those of you this morning who are here and who wouldn't claim to be Christians, I think you know what I mean. You know this sense that Finding a faith, developing a sense of who God is, rests on you. Rests on you, one, to determine if there even is a God. Number two, whether what that God is is like. Three, whether you will choose to worship that God. And four, how you will worship that God. This is the kind of world that we live in. It's up to us to figure these things out. What matters is not that your spiritual search leads to any universal truth. It's only important whether it works for you. And let me be honest. Those of us who are Christians, we can, we can belittle this reality. We can label this as subjective or relativistic or as an Oprah spirituality. Rather than go there this morning, I just want to acknowledge the weight of this sort of a search for God. Any belief in God that begins and ends with us, any paradigm of faith that is up to us to construct will always weigh heavily on us. What if we get it wrong? What if it stops working? What if it conflicts with the constructed faith of the person I love the most? And again, Christians, let's be honest. Our lives are often lived at such a frantic pace, crammed with activity and distraction, that we, at least functionally, have a faith that also begins and ends with us. Whether or not you would consider yourself a Christian this morning, Sabbath is a gift. Because Sabbath, a Sabbath day of rest, allows God to be God. We stop seeking to construct a God, form a God, a belief, a system of faith, and we just allow God to be God. We don't reach out to discover or construct this God. No, God reaches down to us. On the Sabbath day, we stop from our activity and we realize that any God who begins with us is actually no God at all. Any God who is created to make my life better is not a God who can change me. It's not our intellect. It's not our creativity. It's not our discipline that allows us to know God. It is the grace and mercy of God. It is the grace and mercy of a God who could have remained unknowable, but instead has made himself known to us. And so rather than cramming worship into a couple of hours each week, rather than trying to find some time to fit God into our busy lives, the Sabbath clears the deck and sets before us for an entire day the God who has shown himself to us. We come to this God on this day as those who know God only because God has shown himself to us. 
And so at least on a, on a weekly basis, we can take off the burden of having to figure everything out, of having to construct a system of faith that works for us and just be present before God. The second way that Sabbath is a gift is that it can confirm our identities, who we are. Deuteronomy 5.15, we read that, that, that the, the Israelites were to remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Remember, on the Sabbath day, the children of Israel remembered who they used to be, slaves in Egypt. And then they remembered who they were now, children of God. Their identity in the past had been bound up in their productivity. Now... Now they were known by what God had done for them. They had been known by what they accomplished, what they could contribute. Now they were known by the God who rescued and saved them. Accepting that we are God's children frees you and I from the need to prove ourselves. And you hear me right now, but you don't really hear me right now. We are so used to having to prove ourselves that I don't think most of us can even imagine what it feels like to live without having to prove ourselves. We are so used to striving for acceptance that it is almost impossible for us to get our minds around what it looks like to live as those who know that they are accepted. I think God knew this about the children of Israel. He knew that they had been told for hundreds of years, you are slaves. You are known by what you can get done, by what you accomplish. You are a commodity. That's who you are. And so God says, you got to take at least one day every week. Stop and rest in your new identity of who you are in God and begin to live into people who are accepted, who are accepted, who are accepted. Sabbath is a gift because here is one day a week, church, where we set aside everything the world has been telling us about who we are, about where our worth comes, about where our value comes from. We set that all aside for one day, and we proclaim, no, no, no. I am who I am because of who God is. My identity is secure because of what God has done for me. Can you even begin to imagine that? How would your life look different if that was true for you? How would your life look different the other six days of the week if that was true for you? What would your marriage look like if you knew, I'm accepted? What would your friendships look like? What would your closest friendships look like if you knew that you knew that you knew who you were in Christ? How would your relationship with your really annoying boss change? If you knew that you knew that you knew who you were. This is the gift of Sabbath. Once a week, we set everything else aside and we hear clearly from God, you are mine, my beloved child. Let me give a quick aside here about how the Sabbath confirms our identities. One of the speakers who Curtis and I heard last week, he said, do you ever wonder why God created you to sleep away a third of your life? 
Some of you don't sleep away a third of your life because you're not getting enough sleep. But in theory, you ought to be sleeping away a third of your life. I think that's how the math works. Curtis, is that, was, am I saying this right? Eight, eight hours a week? How many of you get at least eight hours of sleep a week? Carla. A week. Sorry. <laughs> a day. How many? How many? How many? Be honest. Let's be honest here. Two of us? Three? Those of us who do, we're like not even proud of it. We're like kind of, right? That's the world we live in. We don't even want to admit that we're getting eight hours of sleep. On the Sabbath day, we embrace our limits. We embrace the fact that God created us to sleep away a third of our lives. You and I live most of the time as if we're not human. We try to live most of the time as if we're not human, as if we don't have limitations. Don't tell me what I can't do. We are just like the people at the Tower of Babel who said, we can build this sucker. We can be right up there with God. On the Sabbath, we, we encounter this sort of paradoxical, paradoxical reality that when we accept our limitations as humans, we are better able to accept a limitless God. You see, when we're trying to live without limits, it becomes very difficult for us to be interested or care about a limitless God. No, I can do it. I can take care of this. I can get this done. We cry out to God when the wheels fall off. But what does it look like if we live as a limited people? What does it look like if we actually live as humans? Created in the image of God, but not God. What happens to how we worship a God who has no limits? What happens to our trust and our reliance and our dependence on the God who has no limits? Number three, third way that Sabbath is a gift to us is that it invites us to live justly. I'll be quick here because we've talked about this quite a bit, but you and I, when we think about justice, we tend to program justice. We think about things that we need to participate in things that we want to do, things that we care about. So we throw ourselves into something, and then we get distracted, we get tired, we forget. When we practice Sabbath, here's what happens. We all of a sudden become very aware of those around us who cannot practice Sabbath. When you and I take a day to rest and worship, we start to become aware of those in our culture who cannot take a day of rest and worship. We become aware of those in our culture who are like the children of Israel in in, in Egypt, who were valued only for what they could contribute. Who have been told that they are nothing but commodities in our culture. You want to get real specific about this, you can talk to Jennifer about the work that our denomination is doing around human trafficking. Those who have been labeled in our culture, you are only good for what you can give me, do for me. But as we begin to experience a Sabbath rest, we become very aware of those around us who don't have this, don't have access to this. This is why God says to the children of Israel, everybody who is under your influence rests. It's not about being Jewish. It's not about being in the right club with the right people. It's about a God who created everybody in the image of God. 
Everybody in the image of a God who on the seventh day rested. So who around you can't rest? Who in your life, who in your neighborhood, who in our city doesn't believe that they are worthy of a Sabbath rest? Or feels financially constrained to work right through the week? Justice moves from being a program to something that is just in our bones as we begin to stop and rest. I know it's another paradox, right? It's like, no, we should keep going. We should keep doing more. But here we stop and we rest, and all of a sudden justice gets in our bones because we're living out of the image of God who cares more deeply about these things than you and I ever will. Number four, the gift of Sabbath frees us from the tyranny of time. Time often feels like tyranny to me. Maybe that's overstating it. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Peter says that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Our God is not bound by time. Our God exists outside of time. We, on the other hand, live as if time is our master. So we try to keep up with time. We wish for more time. We lose track of time. All these ways of talking about time in our culture as if it is what is in charge of us. But when we receive the gift of Sabbath, we find that time is actually not a limited resource. On the Sabbath, you and I engage in the sacred, in the holy act of wasting time. You normally feel guilty about wasting time? (laughs) Sabbath is a day for us to, to waste time. Because there's nothing efficient about the Sabbath. There's nothing efficient about our corporate worship. We could do this more efficiently, right? I know of of a church where Michelle this is for real. They have a computer monitor that only the preacher can see and has a countdown clock on it of how long you can preach for. I think it's like 25 minutes. I know some of you are like, we ought to have one of those in this church. (laughs) That would be helpful. I know of other churches where on communion Sundays, when you come in to worship, you're given a little um, plastic cup that's got cellophane over it and then a little wafer that's got cellophane on it. So it's like a, it's all packaged together. Has anybody seen one of these before? Yeah. So again, it's not me judging. There are ways of trying to be efficient in our worship, trying to get it done quickly, trying to get us in and out of here as quick as we can. Sabbath is a day for us to waste time. In a little bit, you're going to be invited to come up to receive the, the Lord's Supper, to take some bread, to take the cup. Every single Sunday we say, don't rush through this. Be present to this. Be present to what we're remembering. Be present to who God is for you. Be present to what you are taking in to you. Don't rush this. On the Sabbath we waste time and don't feel guilty about it. I think though... For some of us, that sounds beautiful. For others of us, that's a scary thought. I wonder if for some of us, the main reason we don't keep Sabbath is because we are aware that if we indeed stopped, the pain would come up really quickly. 
I wonder if for some of us, we realize that one of the reasons we're just moving so quickly through life, why we're so distracted trying to get so much done is because there's stuff in us that feels too big, too powerful, too painful to look at. And I'm not, I want to sugarcoat it. This is one of the things that happens on the Sabbath. When we stop, the stuff that's in us, that toxic stuff, that sinful stuff, that painful stuff, it begins to rise. It begins to surface. This, this is my experience almost, almost every Sabbath day for me. I've told you this before. I used to think about Sabbath like, oh, it's like, great, a vacation, a free day. Just get to hang out. And after about a year of practicing Sabbath, I, like, I started to notice this rhythm where around lunchtime, I would be funky. I would be mean. <laughs> I would be short with Maggie. I, w- I, would, I would have a quick temper. I would be very grumpy. <laughs> what, what is this about? I'm supposed to be relaxed. I'm supposed to be having these very spiritual moments with God. You know, like, what is this? Just all the stuff in my life that I can push down the other six days is starting to come up. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Here's the good news, church. God says to his Hebrew children, he says, on the Sabbath day, I want you to remember your slavery. It's the junk coming up. God says, don't turn away from that. Don't press it down. Don't forget it. Don't sweep it under the rug. I want you to remember that. Now, to most of us, I think in our day and age, that just sounds mean. It sounds cruel. You keep looking forward. You pay attention. You're future-oriented. Your best is yet to come. These are the kinds of things we hear. God says, I want you to look back and remember your slavery. Remember the worst of the worst. Why? Because who you are today is directly related to who you were then. Because in that moment when we look back, when we allow the pain of our past to surface, we find that a God who exists outside of time is redeeming even that painful stuff in the past. The children of Israel were who they were in their freedom because of what God had done in their captivity. Those years that seemed to be wasted, that seemed to be lost, were not. They were claimed by God. God says, you are now going to exist as a people who humanizes everybody around you. Why? Because of how you were once dehumanized. God wants to redeem even the most troubled stuff in you, even the most painful stuff in you, those things that you really want to forget, you want to leave behind, you want to keep moving so fast so you don't have to deal with those. God wants to redeem even that. Somebody say amen if that's good news. So we have to sit with it a little bit. Usually by 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, I'm okay on my Sabbath day. I've experienced the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. Joel says in Joel chapter 2, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. This is what happens on Sabbath for us. Finally, number five, the gift of Sabbath announces God's good rule. let Let me pay attention here for a minute. Do I have you? One of the ways that we understand Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he goes through all seven days of creation, right? One of the ways that theologically we can understand what God is doing here is that God is creating a temple for God's self. I'm not real interested in, like, was this a literal seven days? That's just not an interesting conversation to me. 
so shoot me. I'm very interested, though, in theologically, what is God saying about himself in in this passage? And I think one of the ways that we can read this really well and accurately is to say that in, in the creation narrative, we see a God building a temple for himself. And on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day, God's not creating anymore. What's God doing? God is residing, inhabiting, indwelling the temple. What's the temple? The universe. The universe is God's temple. So the poet even talks about this in in, in Psalm. In Psalm chapter 11, the Lord is in his holy temple. In, In a little temple constructed by humanity, what does he say? The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. So in the beginning, God creates everything. And he says, this is mine. This is my temple. This is where I will reside. On the seventh day, God indwells his temple, the universe. What does this mean for us? It means... uh, That on the seventh day, we are worshiping a God who claims everything. You see, we compartmentalize things. We go, this is mine. This is yours. We say, this part of my life is mine. God, have this over here. At least functionally, we live as like a couple hours on a Sunday. That's for God. The rest of it, I got to figure out on my own. This is how we live. On the seventh day, on the Sabbath day, we encounter a God who says, nope, it's all mine. It's all mine. You don't get to go anywhere where I don't claim authority over it. This is my temple. So that when we leave this place, when you go to your job on Monday morning, you go with a renewed perspective. This is God's. We don't think about church as that place that we come and huddle and get away from the world for a while and get our spiritual hit so that we can go back out into the world. The world is God's. The universe is God's. So when we go to our workplaces, it doesn't really matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter what your coworkers think is going on. You know, you go as an ambassador proclaiming it's all God's. This is why what Jesus says in our passage this morning is so important. He says, people were made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for people. And not only that, the Son of Man, me, Jesus, is Lord even over the Sabbath. Again, claiming God's authority over everything. Not just over a day, not just over a little bit of worship time, over the Sabbath, over that time when God inhabits his temple. Sabbath is a great antidote to compartmentalizing our lives. Worship team, uh, please come on up. I'm going to wrap up here. I want to end really practically this morning. This is one of the things we wrestled with as a church on our retreat. How do we do this? How do we live this out? How does Sabbath become a reality for us? How do we actually receive Sabbath together regularly? First thing, set aside the whole day. How many of you feel great about setting aside all of Sunday right now? Like, I could do that, no problem. I wouldn't have to think about it. Anybody? We got one, two people. Three, I hear four. I think that's an an authentic reflection of us. The idea of setting aside an entire day for corporate rest and corporate worship strikes most of us as absolutely impossible. Can't do it. 
can't do it. But what if we did? Again, not in a legalistic way, not in the beating each other up if we're not doing it way, but what if most of us did our best to begin living into an entire Sabbath day, an entire Sunday of corporate worship and corporate rest? What would that change for us? Here's the second thing that we could begin doing very, very practically. We could prepare for Sabbath. One of the interesting things about the, 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 uh, the Jewish tradition is that once uh, once sundown comes, Sabbath starts. So you, you just have to be ready because there's these things that you just don't do on the Sabbath. I had a friend who, who for a while was roommates with this Orthodox guy, and, and he, came in, uh, he came in one night kind of late as the Sabbath had already started, and the, the, uh, the guy's alarm clock was going off. And the guy was there. The Jewish guy was, was, was home. And his alarm clock just, bah, 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 bah. and so my friend's like, um, looks like an hour goes by, two hours go by, and the alarm clock just. So finally, my friend's like, hey, um, hey, Matt, <laughs> what's the deal with your alarm clock? And the guy's like, well, uh, technically, it's, that would be work for me to turn it off. And my friend's like, well, I'm not Jewish, so can I turn it off? And the guy's like, well, technically, it's work for me to ask you to turn it off. <laughs> My friend was like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and turn it off. <laughs> but what I, what I, I mean, as, as maybe kind of out there as that sounds and feels to most of us, what I like about this is the idea that you prepare for Sabbath. You, you get the work done, you got to get done. You can't be lazy the day before Sabbath. You got to make it through your to-do list. If you got to get emails done, you got to get your emails done. If you got to clean your house, you got to clean your house. If you got a hard conversation to have with somebody, you got to have that conversation. You've got to prepare for Sabbath. As Maggie and I have practiced Sabbath over the past decade or so, as we've kind of tried to learn to, to, to live into this, this has been one of the very surprising elements for us is that kind of the, the evening before our Sabbath day, we're scurrying around trying to get everything done because we don't want stuff hanging over our head the next day. And, and, and you know what happens? There's almost like this sacredness that, 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 that gets attached to that work. All of a sudden, you're not just working to work to get things done. You're working to prepare to rest and worship. It changes something. I wonder what it would look like for us if Sunday really was a day of rest for us. I wonder what it would change about how we come to worship together here. Because like, I know most of you, I know how you come to, to, to service. <laughs> like if we could hear the conversations between spouses <laughs> on the way to church on Sunday, I'm putting myself, you know, like we're hurried, we're rushed, we're stressed. We're running late. But what if we had a whole day? What if we had a whole day? Would that open up some time for us to move a little bit slower? Would it take some of the, the stress off of ourselves knowing that we have more hours in front of us to rest, to be present to one another, to be present to our God? Would it allow some of us to come, I know this is crazy, on time to church? I know this, I mean, that's like, that's out there. Would 10 o'clock not seem like such an obscenely early time in the morning if we had a whole day of rest? For some of us, maybe we'd even choose to come five minutes early. 
to prepare our own hearts for worship, to acknowledge that we've been running hard all week long. We want to sit for a minute and prepare our hearts for worship. Um, third, very practical thing. We see Sunday morning as a chance to participate together in worship. If we have a whole day together, how does that change how we participate in worship together? In our membership class yesterday, one of our topics that somebody brought up was the discipline of corporate worship. The reality that we gather together as a discipline. And yes, sometimes we love to, sometimes we really want to, sometimes we really quote-unquote get something out of it. But a lot of times it's a discipline to be together. And it's a discipline that over the course of our life of worshiping God in community changes who we are together. The other thing that I think changes here, shifts here, is that we begin to see our service as part of our worship. So our worship team right now, is there a way, is there a way for them to be Sabbathing? Or because they are serving, does this not count somehow? You see, if this is the extent of our Sabbath, two hours together, and you've got to serve on a Sunday morning, that's not going to feel like rest to you. But if you have an entire day set aside for worship and rest, then your service to God's people, hospitality to strangers who comes in, are now caught up in our rest and our worship. I know some of you maybe don't believe me. That seems a bridge too far. But I... And then finally, the last thing that I think we can practically begin to do to receive Sabbath as a gift is on Sundays, as best you can, be as unproductive as possible. Engage in the holy, uh, the holy discipline of wasting time. Does that seem irresponsible? <laughs> what, if, what if every week as you were kind of looking at your Google calendar, however you keep your calendar, you looked at Sunday and that's the day for me to be unproductive. That's a day for me to waste time. That's the day where I can have a meal with friends that I don't need to have an ending point on it. It can just, as long as that meal lasts, we can just be present to them. That's the day where if I need to take a nap, I'm going to take a nap. That's the day when I know the other members in my community are actually free so that if I want to spontaneously call somebody up to have somebody over, I can do that. We engage in the holy, beautiful act of wasting time on the Sabbath. Um, Carla, can you put up this, this poem I want to end with this. Wendell Berry is an author and poet, and he has a a number of poems about Sabbath. These are the last two stanzas in one of his poems. He says, The mind that comes to rest is tended in ways that it cannot intend. Is born, preserved, and comprehended by what it cannot comprehend. Your Sabbath, Lord, thus keeps us by your will, not ours. And it is fit our only choice should be to die into that rest or out of it. There is a way of living frantically in the world that leads to death. And there is a way of dying to the demands and the deceptions of the world that leads to life. The Lord of the Sabbath gave himself to that death so that we might know this new and good life. Church, I pray that we would learn to accept the gift, the gift 
the gift of a Sabbath day rest. Let's pray. Keep these words from sounding irrelevant, I pray. Keep them from sounding burdensome. Keep them from sounding overwhelming. Keep them from sounding archaic, Lord. Allow your word, allow your gift of Sabbath to be true and important to us this morning. Lord, we are a people who knows how to work, how to run, how to keep going. We are not a people who knows how to stop, how to rest, how to be present to you and to one another, how to be present to what you are doing in our lives and in our world. Teach us, please. Teach us. God, we want to be a church, even as we look forward to this move to Kennecott in a couple months, we want to be a church that Sabbaths, that rests well. We want those who you are calling to our church, we want those who we are serving to see in us a people whose identity comes from God and God alone. We want to be a people who is inviting uh, uh, others not to take on another burden, but to actually know the easy, the light, the life-giving yoke of our Savior. So let it not just be words for us, Lord. Show us how to live these things as your people. I pray all of this in Jesus' name, in the Lord of the Sabbath's name. Amen. 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 So, so here's what I want to push you a little bit today. If you, if you couldn't raise your hand and say, yeah, I can take a Sabbath day, um, have a conversation with somebody about that. If you're married, you need to sit down and talk to your spouse and say, how can we do this? Jump in with your community group with a friend, somebody, and say, I, the way I'm living doesn't allow me to actually take a day for rest and worship. And that needs to, that, that needs to change. There's a gift on the table for you today. What needs to change so that you can actually receive it and begin living into the gift of Sabbath? So don't walk out and let just a couple of nice things to be rattling around your head. How can you actually receive and accept the thing that God wants to give you today? So thank you for worshiping with us. Feel free to stay around to worship a little bit more. Uh, there's some cold water out back if you need something, something to drink. But thank you for worshiping with us. Be with us next week. Uh, the superintendent of our conference and our denomination is going to be here preaching, Jerome Nelson. He's going to be talking about mission, this other mark of living as God's people. How do we live as a people of mission? So please, please, please be with us next week. Now receive the benediction. God, send us out to waste some time. Send us out to rest with each other and to rest in you. Send us out to hear from you again who you are and who we in you are. Rescue us out of a world that tells us who we are, that tells us that we have to produce to be accepted. Rescue us into a kingdom of a God who has done it all for us. Thank you for this gift. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.